Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be much mistletoeing and hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Isn't it the most wonderful time of the year? Does that feel like your season right now? I think that's how that feels. Uh, Welcome. We're in the middle of our Christmas at Covenant series this year. And uh, if you haven't noticed, if you missed it last week, each week we're going to be taking a Christmas song and then uh, kind of expanding upon that and seeing what does that have to do with the season we're actually in? Like, that's not reality. So what does reality look like uh, based on the soundtrack of the season? And so this is a little bit subversive. So I'm just going to be honest with you. The whole uh, conceit here of, of this sort of approach is what we'd like to do is hijack your Christmas soundtrack so that when you're in Target or when this comes on the radio, when you hear that song, you never think of it the same way again. We want you to think of something else and maybe even something, I don't know, holy, uh, when we get there. This uh, schmaltzy Andy Williams' Most Wonderful Time of the Year song is where we'll start today. Um, A little idealized, can we agree with that? A little bit idealized. Um, When's the last time you used the phrase, uh, or the verb mistletoeing. Have you used that before? Because he's just walking around kind of a little handsy, if you're being honest. You know, that's not, I'm not real comfortable with what's going on. And then he says there will be much mistletoeing. He's just making up words, and he's so joyful that we're actually kind of drawn in. We're like, you know what? I think this is how I feel. And it is not at all how I feel. I don't feel like that at all. But he's excited. Loved ones are near. You know why he's so happy his loved ones are near. This is what, I've watched this like the 34th time this week, and I thought, you know what, I get it. We would be excited if our loved ones were mannequins as well. Like if no one moved, (laughs) there would never be drama, there would be no disagreement. You know, Uncle Ted wouldn't have his weird political thing that he'd show up with. Nobody would have drama because everybody would just be frozen. It would be great, an inanimate family would be a lot easier. But we know it's a false joy. Like the, we appreciate the sentiment of the song, but we know there's a false joy there, like, like gifts and family and snow shoveling are joyful. No, they're stressful. They're things that create anxiety in us. And uh, this is not the most wonderful time of year because of those things, but we do need the optimism that Andy Williams kind of brings with him. He's trying to bring us into something a little bit more hopeful, and we need that. Especially this year, we need that. I don't want to have to remind you, there's war in Europe, and then we have a shambolic economy. Ohio State lost to Michigan. He wasn't happy, but apparently yesterday he got happy again because Ohio State's going to sneak in the back door of the playoff, but that's not my problem. We need the joy. We need the joy. So today is about rooting that joy in something real and true beyond the naive sentimentality of the season and in something that... uh, that really matters. And so the key to joy in this season is something you've probably never thought of or never uh, distinctly, directly been asked to consider, which is what we're going to talk about today is the doctrine of the incarnation. 
Today is about the doctrine of the incarnation. So we're going to set that up uh, with Paul's letter to the Romans, actually. Paul opens his letter to the Romans this way, and I think we'll see this doctrine in this part of the letter. He says this, I, Paul, am a devoted slave of Jesus Christ on assignment, authorized as an apostle to proclaim God's words and acts. I write this letter to all the believers in Rome, God's friends. The sacred writings contain preliminary reports by the prophets on God's son. His descent from David roots him in history. His unique identity as son of God was shown by the Spirit when Jesus was raised from the dead, setting him apart as the Messiah, our master. This is just the beginning of a letter, of a long letter that Paul is going to write to the church at Rome, but just the beginning begins to show us the doctrine of the incarnation. He says his descent, Jesus' descent from David roots him in history. His humanity makes him a real human historical figure. And then he says his identity of divinity is then seen in his resurrection. So he has a dual identity being set up here. One, he's fully human, and then he's also divine. So Paul begins to set this out, that Jesus is both rooted in history and rooted in the heavenly. And then we have to begin to wrestle with that. What does that actually mean? And why is it important? I think it matters for Jesus to be fully man and fully God if he's going to be fully our Savior. For our joy to be real in this season, it can't be resting on holly and mistletoe and songs and seasons. For our joy to be real, it has to rest on something that can really hold it. And I'm going to argue that that has to be that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. One of my favorite moments of the movie Home Alone was when Kevin's mom, she was at the airport in Scranton. She remember this? She had gotten back from France. She was in Scranton, and she needed to get a flight to Chicago. And the gate agent, that nice gentleman there, the gate agent said, I'm just sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. And she gets all upset, and she starts ranting at him. And she says, this is the season of perpetual hope. And he's like, yeah, I don't know what, I can't really help you. I think she's obfuscating. I think that she is trying to cover up her suboptimal parenting, you know, maybe a little bit projecting. So I left my kid 6,000 miles away trying to get back. How do you feel about that? The guy says, no, I can't help you. And then you see uh, lit up beautifully in the background, John Candy is about to uh, polka, polka, polka his way back to Chicago with her, and it all is going to work out because it's Christmas, Christmas miracles, it all works out. But she says, this is the season of perpetual hope. And I remember hearing that the first time, going, oh. And every year now when we watch this movie at home, that, that line comes out and I go, is it? Do people, like, do other people think that? Do normal, actual, secular human beings believe that the Christmas season is the season of perpetual hope? I'd never heard that. I I really haven't heard it since. But if you look around, I get it. Like, people are getting into Christmas, and that's sort of the sentiment that's out there. Every culture begins to adopt Christmas as their season of perpetual hope. Generosity and peace and hope and joy. It's the time for a Christmas miracle. We hear stories of war being paused at Christmas time for a chance for people to spread cheer and do good, to be generous. Who in here enjoys, guilty or not, who in here enjoys a good Hallmark Christmas movie? Just, you know, yeah, it's okay. There's help for you. Um, These are on in my home. I have three, I live with three women. And um, 
Depends on the day, but somebody is always kind of like, hey, you want to watch a Hallmark Christmas movie? Which is a formulaic. What is it? It's a pretty young woman meets a troubled and damaged man. She changes him because that's doable. And he goes from Christmas curmudgeon to the star of the show. And everybody's happy. And someone has a stepson that's thrilled to have a new mom or a new dad. It always works. We get excited about this. Love ensues. Everything is right. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Nobody asked for, like, a spring Hallmark movie. There's no Hallmark movies about the summer, about love at the cookout. It's only around Christmas when we even want to begin to engage in the nonsensical nature of the secular Christmas miracle. It's a false promise, right? It's selling the same false promise that Target is selling you, that Walmart is selling you, that Amazon is selling you, that Hallmark is selling you. It's the false promise that the right gift under the tree can probably fix the problem. That some lights or, or, or some joy or maybe a little more eggnog can lift the fog of grief in your life. That a, a movie or a song or a tradition will somehow reset your life towards joy. And every year we sort of buy into this little, the world buys in all together and we are like, yeah, that feels pretty good. I'm not saying don't watch a Hallmark movie watch a Hallmark movie. But we have to be cognizant of the temptation to be brought into the idea that something less, something less than the main thing can bring us hope. The hope of Christmas and any hope at all that it's wonderful in any way at all rests on Jesus and the doctrine that he was fully God and fully man. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, you can't take the principles of Christmas away from the person of Christmas without it all collapsing. I should read it slower. You, ta- you can't take the principles of Christmas away from the person of Christmas without it all collapsing. The second we remove anything that has to do with Christmas from the person about whom Christmas centers, the whole thing falls apart. What is the point without him? There is no hope without Jesus. And and we're not talking about the fairy tale Jesus, not good teacher Jesus, not cute baby Jesus all swaddled up in the manger, not that Jesus. We're talking about fully God, fully man, historical figure, and divine Jesus. We don't talk uh, much about doctrine directly. So some of you in here, when I said doctrine, you went, oh boy, here we go. Doctrine is a scary word for people. People think it's a scary word. It's not a scary word. Doctrine simply means, means belief or a set of beliefs. That's all it means. There's war doctrine and there's philosoph- philosophical doctrine and there's political science doctrine. There's doctrine. Doctrine just means belief. But we don't use that word around here very often because people get uncomfortable. The reality is everything that's kind of said Um, from a a Sunday morning should probably have some foundational doctrine behind it. So we have that, but we don't use the word that much. I would say, like, like, think of doctrine this way. We raised our children, we raised our two girls with a parent, we had a parenting doctrine. We had a strategy, a belief about how we would do it, how we should do it, and everyone does it differently. So we had one that worked for us, but it wasn't the same one that everyone uses to raise their kids, but we did our thing our way. We also know that other people do it their way. So some people like demand feeding, and some people like self-soothing. Some people do child-directed, some people do parent-directed, some people are loose schedules, others are strict schedules. Are they breastfed or bottle-fed or formula-fed or pacified or not? Are they swaddled or free? And the swaddled people get all upset about the non-swaddlers, and the non-swaddlers can't believe you would constrict the kid like that. 
and everybody's got a little opinion. And the key is everybody has a belief about what's best, right? We all have a doctrine about what we think might be best there. But parenting, 80s babies, parenting is a choose-your-own-adventure novel. <laughs> Turn to page 46 to see how it turns out. You're like, ah, oh, failed again. If you remember what these are, these were the, this was before video games. This is what we did. Um, this is why we're all so weird. Um, Some parents, though, you'll run into them, will say it's only okay to do it this way. You got to do it this way. If you don't do it this way, you're doing it the wrong way. And we would call those people doctrinaire. They're holding a doctrine and applying it universally, regardless of context. That would be doctrinaire. In all circumstances, without regard to practical considerations, this is the only thing that can hold. And so we try not to be doctrinaire about things that are non-essential or that, not, that aren't clear in Scripture. But where Scripture is clear, we stand really clearly. We hold firm doctrine. Scripture doesn't address screen time for kids, right? There's no example of um, how much time on an iPad a kid should have in Scripture. We have to kind of pull principles out and try to figure it out. Social media use for adults. What does Scripture say about TikTok? Like, well, I can't tell you if God likes or doesn't like TikTok. I can tell you what I think, but I, I can't tell you what God thinks. So we attempt to apply principles and attempt not to be doctrinaire about such things. That makes sense so far? Making sense? We will be doctrinaire about things that are clearly laid out as doctrine that we can't escape. And that's where we are today with the doctrine of incarnation. It's a belief about Jesus being fully God and fully man. And on that one, we can't really budge. It does apply to all contexts and all circumstances and all people and all cultures. It just applies. And we can't wiggle out of it without wiggling out of the entire point of the whole thing. The whole thing we believe as Christians. Like we're a people of the resurrection. You and I have life in eternity, salvation through Jesus because of his sacrificial death and resurrection. But you rewind a little bit in, in Jesus' life. He had to be born first. And for him to be born, it matters that he was born fully God and fully man. And if he wasn't fully God and fully man, then every domino that tips forward from there, we got some interesting implications. So we have to back all the way up to the birth and say, do we believe this to be true? So to expand even on what Keller said, it's not just Christmas. Our entire worldview collapses if we can't hold on to the doctrine of the incarnation. So I'm going to define it here. I've cobbled it together from a few different sources, and I'm actually just going to read it. I wrote it down so I didn't mess it up because it's, you know, you don't want to mess up good doctrine. So listen, this is the doctrine defined. Here's what we say we believe. God became flesh. God assumed a human nature and became a man in the form of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Christ was truly God and truly man. And the doctrine maintains that the divine and human natures of Jesus do not exist beside one another in an unconnected way, but are rather joined together in personal unity that has traditionally been referred to as hypostatic union. Hold on to that word. We'll get back to that. The union of the two natures has not resulted in their diminution, not one is made less so the other could be made more, or mixture. Not, they don't put them in a blender and see what comes out. Rather, the identity of each is believed to have been preserved. That's the doctrine of the incarnation hypostatic is the word we're going to focus on. I'll put it up so you can read it. So if you're like me, you're visual, you got to see it. There it is, hypostatic. 
This means that Jesus was foundationally and elementally fully God and fully human. So, so take, so while that's sitting there, put a mason jar, you know, I'm holding a mason jar, 20 ounce mason jar. And you put oil and water in the mason jar, what happens? They separate, right? How much can I fit in a 20 ounce jar? I can fit 10 ounces of oil and 10 ounces of water. That's 20 ounces. That's not what this is. This, the doctrine of the incarnation says it isn't that. It's not that I did a little bit less Jesus, I mean, a little less God and a little less man, and I put them together, and then I can get one whole being. It's not that. It also isn't that you put some of this and some of that and then mix it and blend it so it looks like one thing. The hypostatic union, the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ as fully God and fully man, says that we have 20 ounces of oil and 20 ounces of water. We put it in a 20-ounce jar, and it fits. Okay. Fully God, fully man, and we got to go with it. The arrival of this hypostatic Jesus is what makes this season the most wonderful time of year. And this is difficult doctrine. So, right, some of us are math people, and you're like, but 20 plus 20 is 40. Hello. It's difficult doctrine because it requires belief. Right? If you could do the math and the formula and get the answer, that wouldn't require faith, would it? Faith is not getting the answer right. Faith is believing in the answer when I can't quite prove it. So knowing that this doctrine is where it all lands, it's where it all begins, knowing that all of the magic and the meaning that we ascribe to Christmas, it rests on the idea that Jesus was fully God and fully man, that means that Christmas begins to sort us out as people. Christmas does dividing work in us. It begins to sort us out. It reveals us, forces us to choose a side. Nick read part of a passage last week about Simeon in the temple who was awaiting the Messiah. In part one, he identified Jesus as the Messiah, and he was like, he's here. Finally, I've been waiting. That's the one. Part two, Simeon says something else, and he speaks into the life of Jesus and of the division that Jesus is going to bring. Pick it up with me in verse 33 of Luke 2. It says, Jesus' father and mother were speechless with surprise at these words. But Simeon went on to bless them and said to Mary, his mother, this child marks both the failure and the recovery of many in Israel, a figure misunderstood and contradicted, a pain of sword thrust through you. But the rejection will force honesty as God reveals who they really are. Simeon is showing us that Jesus and the arrival of Jesus as the Messiah will begin to divide the haves from the have-nots, the believers from the not-quiters, those who want to be a part of this but can't quite get there. See, Jesus' presence on earth isn't the dawning of division. It's the revealing of division. It's the revealing of belief. It's the revealing of our heart stature and our heart posture. Simeon says he's going to be misunderstood He's going to be contradicted. He's going to be rejected. And those who reject him, those who fail to grasp him, those who cannot bend a knee and submit to him as Lord, Simeon says this, this child is going to reveal them. This child is going to reveal those who are playing in, in the religious sandbox and those who are really after the heart of God. Christmas is a revealing season because Christmas shows us what we truly think will save us. You see, your belief and your unbelief this is going to be upsetting if, if you didn't know this. Your belief and your unbelief don't determine who Jesus is. 
You don't change his essence or his reality. Jesus is who he says he is, and your belief in him doesn't make him more Jesus, and your unbelief in him doesn't make him less. He is who he says he is. Which takes us a minute. Why does that matter? Anybody know flat earth people? Don't raise your hand. Somebody believing that the earth is flat doesn't make the earth flat, right? Like it's still a sphere. But but someone can believe it, and they will then live their life towards that end, and you'll go, well, that's, that seems silly. You see, your belief and your response to Jesus' divine incarnation as fully God and fully man, your belief and your response or your unbelief and lack of response, it doesn't determine the reality of Jesus, but it does re- determine yours. If he isn't God, if we want to say he's just a good moral teacher— That will determine your reality. If he isn't Lord, smarter people than me have suggested he's either Lord, or if he isn't, then he's either a liar or a lunatic. Because to come here and say he's God's son, that he would save the the world for eternity through his death on the cross, he's either God's son, or he's a weird liar, or he's an absolute lunatic. But we got to make a choice. Either he is king and we worship him as he is who he says he is, or if we're not careful, in a season like this, we become characters in a Hallmark movie. And we begin putting our hope in schmaltzy sentimentality, and we we don't say it out loud, but we're saying it somewhere with our lives. The evidence of our lives is maybe mistletoe will save us after all. Maybe I can be a little happier if I just lean into the season this year. And Jesus' arrival reveals whether we really believe in the actual thing that saves us. So what are you looking to for salvation? Because Christmas is the season of perpetual hope. It's the time when salvation is coming and it's on arrival. Christmas is the season where every different outlet will offer you a different path to salvation. Is salvation in family, returning home, sit by the fire. Is salvation in winter weather, and snow and sledding? Is, is salvation in gifts under the tree? Is salvation in lights and songs? Is salvation in, in tradition? Is salvation in humanity? Is salvation in, is it in anything less? Because this is a season that's going to offer anything less. Would you like to dive into anything less? It's easier to believe in a Christmas tree than it is to believe that Jesus Christ is God's own son who is fully God and fully man, because that one kind of breaks our brain. But either we marvel at the arrival of Jesus like the Magi and we bend our knee to a king, or we quietly reject. And we don't have to say it. I don't say, I don't believe in this Jesus like you say. We just quietly reject it with the evidence of our lives. This is where the doctrine of incarnation makes so much sense and matters so much. This is why it's so important and why today is about that. Because if we don't believe what Scripture says is true of Christ— And we're believing in a false gospel. And yet if we believe in the doctrine of the incarnation, then we have a hope and a joy beyond anything we can describe. And that's the whole point of the season is that Jesus is ushered into humanity. He becomes rooted in history, and then you and I are forever changed. The world is forever changed at this point in history when Jesus lands on earth And he doesn't land like an alien from outer space. He lands through Mary who labored. He came to earth just like you and I. When Jesus 
appears as fully human, fully God on earth. It is the tipping point of history. He was simultaneously fully God, fully man, hypostatic, and it matters. See, as a man, he was capable of fully knowing you, fully knew you. He knew your pain and your temptation. He knew your longings and your struggles, and he overcame it all. And Scripture would say he lived a perfect, sinless life. So as a man, it matters. But as God, he alone was capable of erasing debt completely, the debt you owe from sin, bringing true healing and true forgiveness. Because think about it, no man, no mere man on a cross would have sufficed for your, for your debt. No single man taking a cross in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago would have by any chance covered all of our collective sins. That required something divine and something greater. And so the man came to know us, be intimate, relationship, and God came in the fully God portion of that to say, I alone can cover you. God himself shedding his own blood, that's a sacrifice that can cover us. And so the doctrine of the incarnation says that because he's fully man, he knows us intimately, and because he's fully God, he covers us entirely. This means that Christmas for you and I who follow Jesus, Christmas becomes a time not of doubt. Christmas becomes a time of holy confidence. Christmas is a time where we see the world celebrating and we know that they don't always know what they're celebrating, but we know. We know. And they can dress up anything they want and they can have a sale in the shop window and we can smile and go, they don't even know what they're celebrating. And that's a glimmer of a hint of a reflection of a sliver of the real story being told here. But I'll even celebrate for the sale. Because the sale points to something greater. The sale says there's something to celebrate. The sale says there is a salvation, and it isn't in 40% off at TJ Maxx. It's better. And so I can celebrate that, and I can put Christmas lights on my house. Because Christmas lights, the light of the world, it's coming. I see a reflection. We put gifts under the tree because Jesus is the ultimate gift. It's coming. We don't get all dour about it and be like, well, bah humbug, Christmas is the worst. Unless you're talking about Jesus only, it doesn't. No, no, I say everything that people are doing that don't know Jesus, they don't even know. It's a reflection of Jesus. They're aiming for Jesus. They just missed the mark. And so all of it brings me back, brings us back. If we're paying attention to the point of the season, the reason for the season, we get excited because what we see in the world's display of Christmas cheer in the most wonderful time of year and much mistletoeing is we see they're almost there. They're getting closer. We don't lack for confidence because we have the holy confidence that God sent his only begotten son so that we might know him. When we do lack confidence or peace or hope, it's because we forget who Jesus is fully. We're looking to something less. But you can't remove the principles from the person. The season and the hope in it has nothing to do with sentimentality or the saccharine songs. It's not mistletoe or merriment. What makes this the most wonderful time of year is that we get to remember that Jesus came as we did. Jesus arrived the same way you did and I did. He experienced the fullness of life and he gave his life for us so that he might extend the gift of eternal life to us from there on out. So we sing and we celebrate and we have parties and we give gifts. We eat good food. We embrace family and friends. We sing to Jesus. We celebrate him. We recognize the gift of grace because God so loved the world because God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him would never perish but would have eternal life. 
This is the beginning of that story unfolding in human history that because God so loved the world, and as a result, we embrace each other. We embrace each other not as, as distant people, but as, as brother and sister with new identities sealed and secured in Christ forever. The Christmas season is one that brings a new birth and it brings fully God and fully man, the doctrine of the incarnation into existence and it changes your eternity forever. Because of who Jesus is, you are included You are accepted, you are loved, you are secured. It is the most incredible thing. And because of the doctrine of the incarnation, because of the reality of the historically rooted and heavenly divine brought forth Jesus, you and I get to look up and say it's the most wonderful time of year. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for a season of celebration. We're grateful for the, uh, the thickness of your word that leaves nothing to chance and, and leaves nothing to be, uh, to be guessed at or estimated. Father, the clarity of your scripture and the clarity of who Jesus was and is brings us security and confidence. And so, Lord, we say thank you. Thank you in this season that as we see all the reflections of you around us, that we can tie them back to you. And Father, we can know that what really saves us, Father, we can know that what really secures us is behind it all. Lord, find us to be people of good cheer. I pray that we would be those people who are uh, prancing around town and and spreading your grace and your mercy, that we're generous and giving good gifts to each other, that we are reveling in the season, we're reveling in the feast. Father, pray that as we make our way through a weary world, that we would be the rejoicing that the world has to pay attention to. Thank you for your presence in our lives. Thank you for your sacrifice and our salvation. We say thank you and we lift it all up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon for our live Sunday service at 9.30, 11 a.m. or 11 a.m. online. Thanks for listening.